All of these are these belief systems. So what is it that we think we should be doing? So if we believe that we want to be ketogenic, I find it helpful to ask myself, well, why do I want to be ketogenic? Do I want to be ketogenic because I truly think that this is what's optimizing my health and this is going to give me the lowest mortality, the lowest risk of cancer, the um, best cognitive function? And if I'm really attached to that, then you know, in those moments when the craving comes, this is where mindfulness comes comes in. And we really pay attention to what do I get out of eating this sugar indulgence versus what do I also get when the shame, the remorse, I'm not in ketosis and, you know, whatever things that I'm noticing are changing. Now, for me, I don't notice that many bad things in my body from my small indulgences. So I do have a hard time convincing myself that I should follow a ketogenic diet. I agree that the research is all there, and yet I need to have a little bit more compelling evidence. I guess I'm not that smart, but <laughs> you know, for me, <laughs> I, um, I just need to have a reason to do it. Welcome to the Mindspace Podcast. I'm Joe Flanders. Thanks for tuning in. The Mindspace podcast is my personal, in-depth exploration of the science and practice of well-being. I'm sharing this journey with you because I believe we can all lead happier, more meaningful lives by getting the facts and training our minds. Join me as I learn and share the most inspiring insights about human flourishing from leading experts, because we could all use a little more Mindspace. Happy New Year! I'm recording this in my first week back at work after the holidays, and uh, after a couple of weeks of overeating and sitting around and generally indulging a variety of bad habits, I'm feeling really ready to get back on track. Now, I consistently find it difficult to maintain a balanced diet over the holiday period, and I'm usually highly motivated to eat well when January rolls around. And that is why I invited Dr. Kara Nance onto the podcast. Kara is a physician, double board certified in internal medicine and obesity medicine. She's the founder of Wellessence MD, a medical practice in Chicago with an integrative approach to primary care and weight management. Kara is also a certified mindfulness teacher and uses her mindfulness practice and teaches mindfulness to her patients to address the cognitive, emotional, and behavioral aspects of eating, which are often overlooked in this field. Kara took me on a fascinating tour of nutrition science, clinical best practices, and the wisdom she's gained from seeing patients over many years. Our conversation covered an analysis of several popular diets, including the Ornish, paleo, ketogenic, and plant-based approaches, the scary truths about sugar, the challenge of managing our kids' sugar intake, the role of the microbiome, how mindfulness can promote healthy eating, and a variety of practical tips and tricks for maintaining healthy eating habits. Please get in touch if you'd like to speak to one of our nutritionists about your own diet or develop a mindfulness practice in one of our group programs. All the info you need is available at mindspacewellbeing.com. And now, here is my interview with Dr. Karen Nance. Hey, 
So Karen Ant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Great. Uh, so where are you calling in from today? So I'm actually calling in from Palatine, Illinois, which is a Chicago suburb where um, I live with my family and have a medical practice called Wellessence MD. Okay. So you're, you're working from home today or are you at the office? I was at the office and I came home because I thought it would be a little quieter for us to talk. So now I'm uh -huh. in my living room. Okay, cool. Yeah. So tell us a bit about yourself and about Wellessence. Absolutely. So um, I'm originally from Pittsburgh. I uh, had a pretty traditional path. I went uh, directly to undergrad at Princeton. I then went to medical school at Penn. I then did my internal medicine residency at the University of Chicago. And I finished that in 2003. And I came out to the Chicago suburbs and joined a 10 provider group. And during that time, I was practicing what I would call traditional Western medicine. Um, we saw probably 30 patients a day, a lot of um, acute illnesses, and the main thing I saw was diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, depression, anxiety, and chronic pain, and a, a wide variety of what I considered stress-related illnesses. So I was finding that um, I would give my patients different advice and, you know, exercise, eat um, healthier, manage stress, things like that. And unfortunately, they'd come back the next year and not much had changed. So after being in that practice for a little over seven years, I really started to feel like so much of what my patients were dealing with had to do with the fact that many of them had unhealthy eating habits, poor exercise habits, and were also obese. So I ended up leaving that practice and pursuing a year-long um, study in obesity medicine and sat for the American Board of Obesity Medicine in 2012 and decided to open up my own clinic that would take care of my primary care patients, as well as a focus on weight management and obesity. So in that first year, I really felt good about being able to put people on diets and exercise programs and use a wide variety of strategies for helping people to get to a healthier weight. But what I soon discovered was that it wasn't that people didn't know what they should do. They had a really hard time sticking with it. So then I started to research what are different ways that I can help people to effectively change habits. And that's when I actually came across mindfulness. So I attended the Mindfulness-Based Eating Awareness Training at the Omega Institute back in 2011. And that was the very first time that I was exposed to meditation. And I spent four hours in silence and heard about John Kabat-Zinn and got really excited and spent the next year reading and studying as much as I could. And the next year, I actually ended up uh, getting to work with John and trained for seven days with um, John and Saki and really became interested in mindfulness-based stress reduction as a modality for both treating obesity, managing habit change, as well as so much of the stress-related illness I was seeing. So that's currently what I do in my practice today. Wow. It's so interesting just how you're really taking seriously the barriers that people face when they're trying to get healthy and stay healthy. So you got the medical side covered, the nutrition side covered, and then the behavioral and sort of mental health side covered. It's a great integration. How, do, how is it working for you? You know, I, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it, none of this is easy. Um, we say that, you know, many of the things that we're trying to implement with patients are simple, but it's not easy. Um, it really requires sort of 
undoing a lot of the hardwiring and so many of the habits that we've developed and opening ourselves up to a new way. And because we're such habit-driven creatures, I definitely find that, um, you know, stress and when we go back into that uh, stress, you know, stress-driven part of our experience that people are going to go back to old habits. So I definitely think that we have a much higher success rate than um, the other weight loss clinics uh, that I know of in Chicago and other places. And um, but it but it really is a practice. Um, I always tell my patients that this is we call it participatory medicine. I don't have any magic cures. There's no magic drug that just suddenly makes people better. But really investing in this entire process. And we have a wide variety of um, curriculum that we offer from mindfulness based stress reduction to mindfulness based eating awareness to also um, facilitating groups for the eat right now, the craving to quit, and the unwinding anxiety applications. So. We have live groups running in our practice about three nights a week. And when I see patients take on the nutritional side, take on the sleep side, take on the mindfulness and stress management side, as well as the exercise side, they do great. So really what it's about is supporting people so that when they start to struggle, we can pull another tool out of our bag of tricks and really help them get back on track again. Right. Okay. So... If it's okay with you, let's start with the nutritional piece. From what I understand, you tend to prescribe kind of low-carb diets for the weight management aspect of the work. So would you go all the way to say that you try to help people get on the ketogenic diet? So we definitely have some patients that choose a ketogenic approach. Um, when people come to me, I really have to assess how... Um, how ready are they to make a dramatic change in the way that they're eating? Um, unfortunately, I had a gentleman come in this morning who um, I had diagnosed with diabetes. His blood sugar was off the charts. His A1C was super high, and he was really, really sick and potentially um, would need insulin. So somebody like this is often ready to jump right into a ketogenic approach, whereas other people that um, just know they're getting a little heavy, notice the blood pressure going up a little bit, maybe the sugar's are creeping up, it can sometimes be hard to convince people to try a ketogenic approach. And they often do get pretty good results with a low-carb approach. But um, I am a big fan of a lot of the ketogenic research. And I think that it is definitely um, pretty compelling that it could be... Um, I, I, I hesitate to say the best strategy. And the only reason I say that is because I do have friends who follow a whole food plant-based diet that do very, very well. So I would say that I prescribe whatever diet is going to get the results that the patient needs. So all of this really begins with an assessment of what is it that you're trying to achieve? Um, are, is it remission of diabetes? Is it weight loss? Is it um, optimization. Some people come in who are pretty highly trained and are just trying to tweak little things. So I really start with a pretty comprehensive interview to determine what exactly are we trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. So I, I would like to kind of explore each of these diets, right? There's so much in the media about all these different kinds of diets. And um, the one that seems to really jump out the most is this ketogenic thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems completely crazy to just eat tons of fat and higher levels of protein than the average person. 
maybe we can start with that one. What is that about? And why is it so bloody popular? I feel like every entrepreneur or CEO or athlete that I meet these days swears by the ketogenic diet and how it's changed their lives. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's very interesting because historically we used to think that a calorie was a calorie and that this was what mattered when it came to uh, weight loss and weight maintenance. And as we learn more and more, we discover that it really has very little to do with that and has a lot more to do with the metabolic state that the body is in. So when somebody chooses to become ketogenic, and let's just go ahead and define that. So traditionally, a ketogenic diet will have less than 20 grams of carbohydrate in it per day. But you know that you're ketogenic if you're measuring ketones in the urine. So some people can actually eat higher levels of carbohydrate and still have some ketones in the urine. Now, the reason that I don't necessarily say it's always ketogenic is that people are starting to notice these significant changes just as the carbohydrate level drops. So um, yeah, I think that what we're discovering is it's these metabolic changes that are really making a big difference and people go into a state where the blood sugars will normalize, the weight starts to come off. They're now fueling the body off of ketones instead of sugar, which actually can heighten mental acuity. And people who follow a ketogenic approach definitely report feeling pretty good. <laughs> so uh, why shouldn't everybody do it? It sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's because we like to eat sugar and carbs. <laughs> I, you know, that's really I don't know what you're weird. talking about. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I feel so good when I do this. And yet, you know, I'll I try to follow a pretty low carb approach myself. And yet, you know, there are certain things that I still allow myself because I just like them. Um, my mom made brownies. And um, before I got on this call, I had some pork belly and asparagus, a nice ketogenic lunch. And then I walked by the brownies and I'm like, well, just a half, you know? So <laughs> um, it's, it's, really, it's really tempting. And I think that if you're not noticing a negative effect on your body, sometimes it's hard to say, I'm not going to eat any of those yummy foods that I was raised on. Mm -hmm. What do you mean if you're not noticing an effect on your body? So some people who are low carb, and I'm actually going to put myself in this category because I definitely used to eat a lot more sugars and carbs than I do now. And what I personally notice is that I get a bit of a stomach ache. Um, I actually can feel something happening in my body that just doesn't feel right. So I'm eating less and less of these types of foods. One of my guilty pleasures are these um, dark chocolate, sea salt caramels that um, I have in my desk. And, you know, they're 70 calories. And after, you know, a particularly intense day, I might reward myself with one. And I just started noticing that while, yes, it's delicious when I bite into it, I was really not feeling good afterwards. So I noticed that I start playing these games with myself, like cutting it in half, and now it's only 35 calories of a straight sugar hit, and I feel less bad. So I can watch my own self kind of measuring that how good does it taste versus how bad does it make me feel. But I think <laughs> if we're not cued into the body, it's easy to miss that. Mm -hmm. I feel like the story of the rise of the keto diet has a very interesting history. And it seems like nowadays sugar is enemy number one, but it wasn't so long ago that, you know, enemy number one was fat. Can you just kind of speak a little bit to 
how that happened and why fat was the was the enemy for so long? Absolutely. Um, maybe I'll start off with um, talking about how sugar entered the scene a little bit first, mm-hmm. and then talk about how we switched on to um, thinking about it as fat, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. So, um, you know, sugar was this food that was first domesticated in New Guinea about 10,000 years ago. And if you know anything about how sugar is grown, it's this grass that grows to be about 12 to 15 feet tall and has these juicy stalks that are about six inches around. And basically, you can grow it from stem cuttings and it matures in about 12 to 18 months in the right type of tropical soil. And when we have this kind of sugar, it's only about 17% sugar, so it's not actually that sweet, but you could only use it for local consumption. So the people in those areas didn't necessarily have too much trouble with it. But then around 500 BC, it was farmers in northern India that actually discovered how to transform the liquid into raw sugar by using these cycles of heating and cooling. And this was thought to be this huge boon because now we could transport it and people anywhere could get sugar. And it's a really energy-dense food. And originally, we thought that sugar was going to be Um, this amazing nutrient because you didn't need to warm it up. It would last for indefinite periods of time as long as it didn't get wet. And it really provided that sort of initial rush that would feel so good. So we really... um, didn't think of sugar and carbohydrates and all of that as being particularly problematic. And it was really some of the research that was done on people who followed a low-fat diet. And by low-fat, we want to make sure that we're saying that this is less than 10% fat, that we actually started to see some pretty significant improvements in terms of cardiovascular health. So the one diet that's less than 10% fat that many people are familiar with is the Ornish diet. Have you heard of that one? No, but I'm curious. Okay. So Dean Ornish was a cardiologist and he actually came up with a diet um, that is plant-based that was less than 10% fat. And he actually put everybody on exercise regimens and he had everybody meditate. So it wasn't simply a nutritional approach, but he really had some pretty dramatic results and people had regression of their coronary artery disease. So this was something that got people pretty excited and had them thinking about, hmm, Maybe this all has to do with fat, and that's what we need to help our patients to avoid. Right. I just want to jump on this. One of the things you said about sugar being, like people being very excited about sugar, and it became a kind of a very important commodity in the global economy, right? And I'm thinking maybe this is the late 19th century, if I'm getting my history correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I like to think about how it moves around because if you follow the path of sugar, um, you really see a whole bunch of cultural changes happening as you sort of follow where it went from India once we learned how to refine it. Wow. So like what kinds of changes, for example? Well, it went first from India by Buddhist missionaries into China and Japan. And then it was the Muslim explorers in China that carried it back to Arabia and Persia. And then the Muslim empire spread the sugarcane growing around the entire Mediterranean. So this was when the Egyptians really got into the creation of sugar, and they refined the techniques that we've used to create our sugar ever since. Oh, I see. 
Right. Mm -hmm. It was up in the 12th century that we started to see it in England. And I think that this is where our Western culture really started to use sugar um, more and more in foods because what we what we had along with sugar was we also had the slave trade um, because mm -hmm. farming sugar was such awful, dirty work, very hot, lots of bugs, um, really unpleasant climates that you really couldn't pay anybody to do it. So as you watch the spread of sugar, you also saw the rise of slavery because people really valued sugar almost as if it were a drug. And the only things that limited how much sugar people would buy and consume was how much land was available to farm it and how many slaves you could get to do the work. So this the whole imperialism were the cultural things that I think we really saw happen along with sugar. And again, if I'm getting my history right, the 20th century in North America the sort of nutrition science was really focused on the cardiovascular risks associated with eating a lot of fat. Is that correct? Yes. So definitely until um, very recently. I mean, even as we look at the original food pyramid that came out in the US in the early 1990s, we actually had olive oil up in the top of the pyramid with Coca-Cola and cookies. So it definitely was demonized for many, many years. And I've heard reference to the sugar industry or sugar, the sugar lobby, or even like the sugar mafia as one of the contributing factors in maintaining this belief that fat was very dangerous, even once the data started to come in that it wasn't that simple. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many instances where we see consumerism fighting against this story of the dangers of sugar. Um, one of the things that we've seen here in the United States is that we know that sugar-sweetened beverages like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and you know the wide variety of things you can buy in the store are so directly linked to obesity that there have been multiple attempts both in New York City to just legislate the size of the beverage here in Chicago with a tax. And there's so much... Um, there's so much outrage by the lobbyists that they really create some pretty powerful forces that have resulted in these laws being repealed. So um, mm. we there's a lot of information out there. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that even the artificial sweetener industry, um, that was a lot of the studies that were showing that artificial sweeteners caused cancer in rats and things like that were all funded by the sugar industry because they didn't want people even going to artificial sweeteners. They wanted them eating the real sugar. And is it the case that money from the sugar industry funded studies uh, showing that fat was actually harmful more so than sugar? Definitely. And um, there's a lot of that in uh, Gary Tobbs has written a book called The Case Against Sugar that came out at the end of 2016. And if you're interested in that uh, research, I think that he does a great job of pulling out a lot of these studies that we know were funded. Um, and, you know, so many of the ones that really talked about saturated fat. And it's interesting because we can really see some of the dangers of necessarily jumping on certain assumptions that come out of research. Because with saturated fat, they 
could see that sometimes people had higher cholesterol and people believed that cholesterol caused heart disease. So then people started believing that saturated fat was what was causing heart disease. But this really wasn't based on any experimental evidence. We know that this really was all correlation. So that's why in 2014, as the ketogenic diet was becoming increasingly popular, there was actually a cover of Time magazine that was you know, advising people to eat butter and had a pretty... Um, interesting cover. And that, you know, contrasted pretty distinctly with an article of Time magazine about 30 years before that had eggs and bacon on the cover with a frowny face saying, stay away from that. <laughs> so there's been a huge shift in what the science is showing. Right. So interesting. So um, to what do you attribute that shift? Like w what happened? Why did public opinion shift so dramatically? Well, you know, Atkins actually came out with a lot of this research in the 70s. And unfortunately, a lot of it was discredited. Um, I do think that the American Heart Association um, has had a very um, entrenched whole food plant-based um, dietary approach for a long, long time. And a lot of their studies are based upon that. And it's really interesting for me when I go to my obesity medicine meetings that there's a ketogenic camp that is mostly filled with obesity medicine specialists. And there often is a whole food plant-based camp, which is often staffed with cardiologists. So um, hmm. it definitely is in some ways, the culture that you're raised in. And I think that it's just important for us to remember that there may not be one best diet for everyone, and that it does take a little bit of experimentation to figure out which strategy is going to be best for you. Kara, this is all way too reasonable and balanced. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm expecting some controversy and some yeah, radical yeah. statements here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you get plenty of that at these meetings. And, right. um, you know, and I think the other thing with ketogenic, I mean, there's so many reasons to consider going ketogenic. Um, we've had uh, um, studies that have shown uh, decreased all-cause mortality. We've seen um, an increase in cognitive function. We've seen decreased in cancer rates. Um, there is research that's showing that um, a ketogenic diet can lead to all of these outcomes. At the same time, we do have Dean Ornish and a wide variety of other studies that show that people can have similar outcomes with a plant-based diet. So what seems to be rising to the top is that it really has a lot to do with processed foods. And we need to remember that just because we're following a vegan or a vegetarian diet, that could involve a lot of processed foods. And similarly, when you're following a ketogenic diet, um, I think the foods tend to be less processed, but I guess that depends upon how much lunch meat, bacon, sausage, these types of foods that we're eating. But if you, there are many ketogenic people that are eating meat, you know, from animals that are eating salmon, that are eating avocados, that are just eating, you know, nuts, things that um, I think, I think ketogenic people more easily end up in a whole food approach as opposed to the vegetarian or vegan, which often end up consuming a lot of processed foods. Hmm. That's interesting. Maybe one last question on keto because um, I'm a little bit obsessed with it myself uh, for reasons that we'll all mention in a second. 
it would be interesting to hear a little more clarity on, to use Gary Taub's expression, the case against sugar. What's so bad about sugar? And what is it that the ketogenic diet does to sort of correct for that risk? Sure. So um, when a person eats sugar, you get a corresponding spike in insulin. And it's this insulin spike and insulin resistance that we think starts to cause a lot of the health problems that people experience. So insulin, just for anybody who doesn't know, is made by the pancreas and it's what actually drives sugar into cells. So when the insulin resistance is present, we get something called metabolic syndrome, which is the high blood pressure, the high cholesterol, the diabetes. We know that there's increased inflammation, so people have a higher risk of cancer. We know that there are fertility issues because women develop polycystic ovarian syndrome and men um, can also develop erectile dysfunction and get an imbalance in the estrogen and testosterone levels. So there's so much about sugar that actually causes inflammation, fat deposits in the liver, and this entire cascade of disease that um, unfortunately can take decades to really manifest. So people start to get sick slowly. And sometimes I use the analogy of that frog in the boiling pot of water where, you know, the heat's just turning up gradually over time and people don't really realize the effects that sugar's having on them. And because sugar is oftentimes a super stimuli, meaning it really, really activates the brain, people can actually go through what we call keto flu when they're coming off of sugar. So if you want, I can review just a little bit about what's happening in the body when um, when people are basically quitting sugar, or I say sobering up. Please do. You're already scaring me, but uh, keep going. <laughs> So, um, you know, those first few days can be kind of rough. I mean, we know that um, when rats are given the choice of cocaine or a sugar liquid, that they take the sugar every time. We know that sugar lights up the same areas of the brain and has a lot of addictive tendencies. So when you talk to somebody who decides to quit sugar, they often feel irritable. They feel restless. They may get headaches. They have all of these same withdrawal symptoms that you often will hear from people that are quitting smoking or um, trying to give up on some other substance that they've become attached to. So um, this is what we tend to see in the early phases. And as we know with addiction medicine, it's not just about the physical addiction. There are so many psychological cues because when people eat sugar, they feel good. We get that dopamine release in the brain, which is why it can be hard to stay on keto because those first few bites of whatever we have can be really good. So when somebody decides to give up on sugar, the body is going to go to glycogen stores, which are in the muscle. And glycogen stores will be used up within the first four to six hours that somebody um, is fasting or doesn't consume sugar. The body's then definitely going to go into a state where it's craving the sugar because it hasn't yet developed the ability to fuel off of fats. So the body starts entering this process called gluconeogenesis, but that doesn't start until about 24 hours after somebody starts stops consuming sugar. 
And it's in that phase that people actually start to fat burn. And when people are fat burning, the fat goes through a chemical reaction that actually creates what we call the ketone body. And ketones are a super fuel. They, um, if people can get through this initial detox period and they get into ketosis and the body is starting to fuel off of fat, they do report increased mental clarity, some increased energy, and all of those acute um, addictive symptoms to the sugar do go away pretty rapidly, usually within a week. Right. So again, it sounds pretty great. Uh, <laughs> now, the fact that it's hard to stay on is, a, is definitely a, a piece I want to get into. But again, like why shouldn't everyone do this? Well, I think the biggest reason everyone shouldn't do it is that we are in a bit of crisis around the ability for us to sustain the Earth's population on animal protein. Typically, mm -hmm. when you're on a ketogenic diet, um, you need to have usually 65% or more of the daily calories are coming from fat. And in order to achieve that, you're usually consuming animal products. So there is a big environmental impact to consuming so many animal-based products. So I think that um, the that's probably the biggest argument for why not. From a health standpoint, um, I see I actually don't have one single patient that has had a bad outcome from following a ketogenic diet. And I actually don't even have a single patient that doesn't wish they could continue it. It's just that sometimes the craving and the desire for sugar and carbohydrates isn't, it, I guess the craving's too big to make the health benefit mm -hmm. worth it or the health or whatever they're suffering from doesn't kind of reach a level that it influences the behavior. Hmm. So I'm definitely aware of the environmental impact of this diet, which is obviously a big issue. Um, but I thought there were health issues as well, health risks. Like, is it really correct to say that it's okay to eat so much fat and it's okay to eat so much meat? Like, like what about the value of the low-fat diet? Yeah, you know, it, it, there's a lot of controversy over how much protein does a human need. If you mm -hmm. look at the recommended daily allowance um, of how much protein does an individual need to get, um, they actually say only like 40 grams of protein a day, which with my patients, when I'm helping them to lose weight and I'm shifting them to lower carbs, um, we're typically targeting 100 grams of protein per day or more. There's a lot of fear in the medical community that this can be hard on the kidneys, but mm -hmm. this actually doesn't seem to be um, borne out at all. And I actually think that diabetes and high sugars in the bloodstream are way harder on the kidneys than protein. And I actually have a patient that was a renal transplant patient who had one kidney and diabetes and the kidney was failing. And we switched him to a very low carb possibly ketogenic, very high protein diet. And he actually had improvements in his kidney function um, with this type of an approach. So um, I think that the dangers of it have been somewhat inflated. Now, I do want to mention if you have diabetes and you're on medication for diabetes or insulin injections, switching to a ketogenic diet will cause your blood sugars to go low very rapidly. And if you're on medication, this can be really dangerous. So for anybody who's taking medication or on insulin shots, you really do need to 
consult with your doctor about, and hopefully a doctor that's familiar with the ketogenic diet and adjusting people's diabetes medications when you try it because the uh, changes can be, the, the changes happen quickly over days. Hmm. Wow. Okay. I wanted to get a clarity on something that I was a bit confused about a moment ago. We talked a little bit about the history of sugar and then you, and like the, sh- the sugar cane plant, but then you also threw in sort of more, the more general category of carbohydrates. And mm-hmm. so when I think about carbohydrates, I'm thinking about grains and fruit. I guess fruit has sugar, but if I'm having a piece of sort of multi-grain toast, does that have sugar in it? Uh, what, yeah. like, how do you, how do you classify those things? Absolutely. So um, we're getting a little bit into that realm of what we call good carbs and bad carbs. So right. um, when I uh, when I think about um, what is a nutrient, and there's basically three classes of nutrients. There's protein, there's fat, and there's carbohydrate. Every single thing we eat is some combination of those three things. So if we're following a ketogenic approach and we're mostly eating protein and fat, we see that the blood sugar rises somewhat slowly. It stays at a very even plateau. And then depending upon how many calories were consumed, it starts to then drop, which signals hunger and the body will eat again. Now, in a um, carbohydrate-based With carbohydrate-based foods, we have to think about, is this a complex carb? Is this a simple carb? Is this a sugar? Or is this a synthetic sugar like high fructose corn syrup, which affects the body differently? So let's start with complex carbs. And um, the complex carbs are what we think of as the good carbs. These are the bulgur, the um, cracked wheat, the uh, steel-cut oats, the whole grain bread. Now, these foods are thought to be healthier carbs because they hit the bloodstream more slowly. These are the type of carbs that have protein and fiber in them, so it causes the sugar to be absorbed into the bloodstream much more slowly, which results in a slower release of insulin, so there's not as much metabolic effect on the body. When we're talking about simple carbohydrates, we're talking about things like white flour or white rice or any other type of refined white carbohydrate. Um, These will hit the bloodstream much more quickly and cause a higher insulin spike. And the blood sugars also drop more quickly, so people are going to feel hungry and be looking for more food again. The same thing happens with sugar, but it's an even higher spike and a quicker drop. And with high fructose corn syrup, we get a really high quick spike, which is why we sometimes talk about that sugar rush, but then it's often followed by a crash, especially if there's not enough protein or fat that's operating as a base. So using that same sugar acts on the brain like cocaine type of analogy. I think of these synthetic sugars like high fructose corn syrup operating on the brain like um, crack cocaine. So just a more intense, um, a quicker hit to the body and definitely activating more of those addictive craving loops that we see. Yeah. You got me thinking about my kids here for a second because it is insane how much they crave sugar. And I wonder if you can kind of educate me here in the sort of constant battle to regulate their sugar intake. This is a battle I have with my wife who, you know, the two of us are trying to work this out. I sort of have this fear that their bodies are on a day-to-day basis because they're young, kind of developing their baseline 
or their their routines and habits uh, that will be with them for the rest of their lives. I wonder if it's actually more important for them to eat less sugar now so that their bodies just get used to having a more balanced diet or because kids just eat so much sugar in general. How do you think about regulating sugar intake in kids? Yeah, I feel you. I've got four kids myself. Um, my youngest is 11. My oldest is 19. So this has been a battle in our household as well. And, you know, when we think about this and I think about sugar, I mean, it really is an intoxicant. I mean, when you watch my my kids and the way they are with sugar, I mean, it it is very much like a drug. I feel really um, happy that my teenagers have never, um, I haven't found, you know, drugs and cigarettes in their bedroom, but I have found Hawaiian bread or I have found (laughs) Kit Kats like stashed (laughs) under the mattress because, you know, these are just things that we don't buy. And, um, you know, it's not that I'm taking a completely hardcore approach because I don't want to create too much of a forbidden nature around it. But in our household, we've had a really active diet dialogue about the fact that sugar is not good for us in any way, shape, or form. Sugar is addictive and that we really need to be mindful when we're consuming it and that it's natural to want it, but that we really need to keep it in check because we know that there's this set point that's developing inside the body. And I think that sugar acts in the body like any other drug. And we know that our preference for sweetness will adapt over time. So as Mm -hmm. you get used to something sweet, you're going to want things to be sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. On the contrary, if you suddenly decide to go sugar-free and not have any sugar in your foods whatsoever, and then a few months later decide to have something sweet, you'll often find that it seems almost too sweet, even when it was something that you used to consume every day. So we know that the body is going through um, continuous adaptation, and we really do need to be mindful of how is this affecting me? How much am I wanting it? And obviously with children, they don't have fully developed brains. So even adults have a hard time regulating their sugar intake. I think that on some level, we are creating little drug addicts by giving our kids sugar. And it's hard to say that because we don't want to ruin Halloween and every birthday party they ever go to. But I think we really need to take it seriously, um, just like technology use and other things that we know really um, hook our kids in and can affect their developing bodies and brains. My wife is officially going to hate this interview. Um, you're really, you're really reinforcing some of my concerns, especially this notion of the set point I think is very compelling. And I've never seen my daughter more serious and more focused and more dialed in than when she gets home from Halloween. It just becomes just a very intense moment for her. I'm resonating with everything that you're saying. You know, the the set point thing I think is really interesting. I was going to make another comment on that. Um, You know, one of the things that we know in the obesity medicine community is that the the body can be a normal weight for years and years and years. And then something happens metabolically. And it's probably many different things because we've identified over 200 genes that if you affect them, lead to the development of obesity. So we're not clear exactly what foods is it, which chemical exposures, which drugs, like what is it that changes things? But we know that for some people, they seem to be born heavy and have issues with being heavy their whole life. But 
other people, they can be thin for a very long time. And then it's almost as if something switches in the metabolism. And the body has a fat mass set point that it really wants to protect. So I think it's so important for people to focus on not getting heavy in the first place. Because in my experience, it's so much easier to stay at a healthy weight than it is to maintain a healthy weight once you've been diagnosed with obesity. So I think that um, the entire science of this field, we know that it's not just related to eating habits, but also to having unhealthy muscle because we don't move enough, to having sleep deprivation, to living with chronic stress, to having disrupted circadian rhythms. And then about 10% of the people who have obesity are on some medication that we know is associated with increasing that body mass set point. So anything that we can do to try to keep our kids at a healthy weight and to keep that metabolic switch from being activated, I think is really important. Okay. So I'm going to get some free coaching from you, um, <laughs> if you don't mind. Um, you know, we've talked before and I'm aware of all the things that you've said. I'm, I'm definitely glad to get some extra detail today, but I do find sugar addictive. I have been on in ketosis for, you know, a few weeks or a few months at a time. I do find it very difficult to sustain. I think I have a kind of a sweet tooth. And I guess I, I'm curious how you advise people who, uh, and you know, in many cases are in more dire health circumstances than me, but people who know what they need to do, but just find it very uh, difficult to sustain the habit of eating in this way. And in particular, some of these mindsets that people get into, and you alluded to one earlier when you said, I like to have my little you know, salty butterscotch chocolate or whatever it was as a reward at the end of a long day or that it's so effortful to resist these cravings all the time that there might be some kind of emotional or psychological benefit just to sort of indulge occasionally. My sense of the keto diet is that you really need to be quite disciplined, right? Because you don't want to move out of ketosis if you just have uh, something sugary that day or something. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that that the first, you know, all of these are these belief systems. So what is it that we think we should be doing? So if we believe that we want to be ketogenic, I find it helpful to ask myself, well, why do I want to be ketogenic? Do I want to be ketogenic because I truly think that this is what's optimizing my health and this is going to give me the lowest mortality, the lowest risk of cancer, the um, best cognitive function? And if I'm really attached to that, then you know, in those moments when the craving comes, this is where mindfulness comes in. And we really pay attention to what do I get out of eating this sugar indulgence versus what do I also get when the shame, the remorse, I'm not in ketosis and, you know, whatever things that I'm noticing are changing. Now, for me, I don't notice that many bad things in my body from my small indulgences. So I do have a hard time convincing myself that I should follow a ketogenic diet. I agree that the research is all there, and yet I need to have a little bit more 
compelling evidence. I guess I'm not that smart, but <laughs> you know, for me, <laughs> I um, I just need to have a reason to do it. So for my patients that are in those dire straits that you're talking about, um, I think that for some people, it truly becomes life or death. And that doesn't mean that they're not going to still want sugar. And in fact, we know from our experience with cigarettes and other drugs that addiction is acting out a behavior in spite of adverse consequences. So we really have to familiarize ourselves with what is the adverse consequence that I'm trying to avoid by this eating behavior. And this is where I think mindfulness is incredibly powerful. And we do have our tool Eat Right Now, which is a um, digital app that takes people through a 28-day mindfulness-based program. There's also a nutritional curriculum that I happen to um, create that's in there, as well as a whole bunch of other bonus mindfulness modules. So um, I don't think the fear of disease or the fear of adverse consequences is what gets gets anybody to make a long-term change. I think it's connecting with the positive aspects of whatever it is you're choosing, of really resting in the experience of how the body feels when I do stay on a certain plan, whether that's ketogenic, whether that's low carb, whether that's whole food plant-based, because those tempting treats are going to keep presenting themselves to us. And, you know, I may be able to get it out of my house, but I'm going to end up in a restaurant. I'm going to end up at a party. I'm going to need to develop skills to navigate those cravings as they arise. Right. So it's very interesting. It's not just about inhibiting an impulse to eat. It's also about connecting to what's of value and what's important to you in a broader sense. Yeah. And I think that we've discovered that when we're inhibiting an impulse, um, or sometimes we call that white knuckling, that, you know, that only works until we get tired, hungry, or stressed. And then Mm -hmm. we basically, you know, are going to give into that behavior because it's just too hard to white knuckle through it. So, If we can start to become more mindful of what's happening in our body during those times that we are under some amount of stress or we're tired or we're hungry, we may find ourselves still having cravings, but actually choosing something that's more nourishing. And that is ultimately the goal, even though we know that we're still going to have indulgences. Um, I, Like I said, personally, I still have a little sugar in my life. I may change that at some point in time, but um, mindfully enjoying um, certain indulgences makes a lot more sense to me than trying to white knuckle it with a very, very strict approach and then completely blowing it and um, kind of overdoing it and experiencing a bunch of shame or feeling sick. And that's been more um, my strategy is what is it that I can maintain? What is my intention? And how can I continue to practice so that I get closer and closer to the diet that I want to be following? Hmm. Nice. So let's talk about some of the alternatives here. Plant-based diet, the Mediterranean diet. What other approaches are you recommending to your patients? Yeah, I'd have to say that um, in general, I the number one thing that I say is to all extents possible, avoid processed foods. I think that mm-hmm. um, anything that uh, is not a whole food um, is a 
is a potential culprit. And there was actually a recent study done where people were fed a processed food diet versus a whole food diet, and they had the exact same number of calories and the exact same macronutrient um, distribution, but one was processed and one was not. And what we discovered was that the people who were eating the processed foods actually consumed more calories than the people that weren't eating the processed foods. So I do think that that's um, pretty interesting. And they consumed those calories over um, a similar period of time. So they it seems like they ate a little bit more quickly. So that's the first thing that I say is just try to get to a whole foods diets as best you can. I also tell people to become mindful of how many carbohydrates they are eating. And then if people want to go through sort of a, a detox and just get off the sugar completely. Um, there's a variety of ways that we can support people in doing that. Um, but even just saying, I'm going to have 50 grams per day less than I do right now on average. And then maybe the next month or week, you know, taking it down another 50, that's, that's another reasonable approach. Although if people are addictive to these sugars and these carbs, it can sometimes be more difficult to do that than it is to go cold turkey. Because we have to remember that craving um, can be like a bonfire where the more you feed it, the stronger it becomes. So if you just um, you know stay away from the sugars, stay away from the carbs, um, the cravings will lessen over time for sure. And mm -hmm. there's no one food that I think all people are potentially addicted to. I think it's a wide variety. So back to the question about other diets, the paleo diet is another one that I think many people do well with. Um, this is a diet that says, let's try to mimic what our ancestors were eating 100,000 years ago. And it's a variety of animal-based proteins, as well as natural occurring animal and plant-based fats, as well as a wide variety of any fruit or vegetable that you can find. Now, some people will have trouble with fruit. We have to remember that our fruits have been um, genetically selected to be very sweet and have high levels of sugar. So I actually have some patients that identify as fruit addicts and had taken everything else out of their diet and were still metabolically stuck until they took fruit out as well. Hmm. You know, if you talk about monitoring how many grams of carbohydrates or any kind of careful watching. I know for myself, and I don't know if this shows up in your patients, but I find I can become very obsessive mm. about everything that's, you know, that I'm eating and what's available to me and, you know, which restaurant should I go to for lunch and becoming, you know, that decision being complicated. And that becomes a kind of a stress in and of itself. And um, it all, like, I've had moments where it's just, like it's so ridiculous how complicating, how yeah. complicated eating has become, yeah. and uh, I wonder how you deal with that. And I, I'm I'm aware of these movements now, like intuitive eating, and I'm not sure mindful eating belongs here as well, where we are trying to move away from just how complicated all of this is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the beauties of um, whole foods, and um, we had spoken of how. It, it, Richard Pollack, did I say his name right? Pollen? Uh, Michael Pollen. Michael Pollen, yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah. and you know, and he says, um, eat real food, 
mostly plants, not too much, you know, and the, mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy that line because it's very, very simple and it can take away a lot of the complexity. Um, and I think that the more we are in tune with our body, the more we'll know how much we need. And there's sort of a fun game that um, my patients and I will play, which is what is the smallest amount of this food that I can eat and feel satisfied? So I think if you find yourself getting too wrapped up in how many calories is it, how many carbs is it, um, all of these different um, issues, we know that stress itself is harmful to the body. So that's probably a clue right. that you need to offer yourself a little bit more compassion, a little bit more patience, and just understanding that this is a new set of skills. And just like anything else that we're learning to do, it can be frustrating in the beginning. And it definitely requires our attention. But as we get more and more into balance, the body naturally does start telling us, ah, yeah, this is where I should be. This is what works for me. And we can even go to restaurants and know what foods we can order and learn about our triggers and maybe pack half of it up before we even get started and really pay attention to how much of this do I actually need to be eating. Cool. Is there, this might be a little bit too broad, but can you speak to what the science says is the most healthy way to eat? Uh, yeah. You know, the interesting thing is that there was a recent study done and, um, you know, people can feel free to contact me via my practice if they want these studies specifically, but it actually looked at a wide variety of different diets and it looked at them in terms of weight loss. And it actually found that with all of these different dietary approaches, similar amounts of weight loss were achieved. They also saw that with all of these dietary approaches, after a year, similar amounts of weight regain also occurred. Mm -hmm. So if you you know trust that data, um, there's really not necessarily one diet that's best for everyone. Now, that being said, if you have certain metabolic diseases like diabetes, I think that a ketogenic diet may be a better strategy. Um, but I think this whole idea around saturated fat and cholesterol and these kinds of foods leading to heart disease um, is only true if you're also eating those foods with carbohydrates. In the absence of carbohydrates, the oxidizing effects of the cholesterol and the other inflammatory things that we know lead to disease problems processes really don't seem to be happening with protein and fat, even from animal sources. Hmm. Well, that sounds kind of important. I'm not sure how many people are aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, I want people to hear that a ketogenic diet is a healthy, great alternative. But if you decide to just increase the amount of protein and fat you're eating and you still have your toast and your rice and, you know, your cookies, you're actually probably creating more harm than, um, than if you were following a more traditional Mediterranean diet that was one of the ones you mentioned that has more like 30% fat in it instead of the 65% fat of the ketogenic diet. So I think that it's um, important to just kind of look at the overall diet and your overall compliance rate and just figure out where it is that you're 
that you think you can land. And if you do want to try to follow something that's a lot stricter, like a ketogenic approach, and you do fall off the wagon, recognizing that the sooner you can get back into your ketogenic habits, the easier it will probably be. And that um, the yo-yo diet effect um, actually can be somewhat detrimental. There are some studies Mm -hmm. that suggest that each time people regain their weight, they regain a little bit more than what they had lost. And that's not the result of fad dieting or the ketogenic or any specific dietary approach. It's just that when the set of habits is abandoned that enabled the person to lose the weight, the body goes back to this fat mass set point. And it seems like each time the set point rises a little bit higher. So it's a little bit harder to get back down there the next time. So if something's too restrictive and is resulting in a lot of yo-yoing in regards to weight, then I recommend that people get rid of the processed foods to the best of their ability and just really try to pick whatever approach that they can sustain for, uh, for with, with, le- with more ease, with less suffering. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we want eating to bring joy. Eating is a wonderful thing and we really don't want to overcomplicate it or make ourselves too stressed. But I think it's important to have these intentions around what do I think is going to be best for me Try it for a few months and, you know, check in with whatever you are determining success or health to look like. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Another thing that I keep hearing about and reading about is the the health of your gut flora, the microbiome. Ah. And you alluded to it earlier, talking about sugar. Yeah. And if I understood correctly, you were suggesting that inflammation is connected Absolutely. to- Sugar. So can you just um, clarify the role of the microbiome here? Absolutely. And let me just make one other comment before we shift away from ketogenic is that one of the really interesting things about the ketogenic diet is that um, it does appear to lower levels of inflammation because the cholesterol molecule can actually remove some of the macrophages, and which is an inflammatory cell. So when somebody is truly ketogenic, they do seem to have less inflammation inside the body. Um, so shifting into the microbiome, um, one of the- Sorry, but how do you, how do you know in general if you have issues with inflammation? Is that one of those things that only comes out over time? So we can measure um, markers in the body. Um, The ones that I measure is the high sensitivity CRP, as well as an LPPLA molecule. And these are markers of inflammation on a cellular level, as well as in the endothelium, which is in the blood vessel wall. So these are markers that can be measured in the bloodstream. Um, And I think that people can also feel if they're in an inflammatory state. I think that if um, somebody is suffering with chronic pain, um, chronic uh, stomach problems, um, any sort of chronic disease state, most of these disease states are also associated with some level of inflammation. So while it can be measured, it also, I think, can be felt. I, I have patients that definitely will report um, that certain dietary strategies lower inflammation in their body. And whether it's their skin, whether it's their joints, they can just tell that there's less inflammation going on. Hmm. 
Okay, so sorry, I'll let you get back to the yeah. microbiome. <laughs> yeah, sure. So yeah, I think the microbiome is fascinating. And um, I think that you were connecting the microbiome and inflammation because we know that certain microbiomes seem to create more or less inflammation in the body. And we're talking about the gut flora here. And what I think is interesting is that it's the ratio of one type of bacteria to another inside the gut that seems to make the most difference. And um, there are so many things that contribute to the microbiome. Um, I just heard so much about this at the Harvard uh, Blackburn Obesity Medicine course, and it's such an active area of research right now. And what I learned while I was there is that um, the microbiome is often set um, in the first three years of life. So we first get colonized with bacteria when um, during a vaginal delivery when um, the baby passes through um, the birth canal. And then through nursing, um, there's more bacteria that are colonized. And then just through all the life exposures, any of us that have had a baby or a toddler recognize that they put everything in their mouth. So um, there's something about both genetics as well as environmental exposures in the first three years of life that sets up the microbiome. And that tends to be what the microbiome will gravitate to towards the rest of your life. Now, studies have shown that people with obesity have a distribution the, the ratios of certain bacteria to others is different than people who are thin. And is it okay if I gross people out a little bit by talking about um, some interesting studies? So, um, sure. yeah, you know, if you live in Boston, they actually um, have a really big stool transplant. So they have like ads everywhere in Boston where they basically are trying to get young, healthy college kids to just come poop once a day at their facility where they collect their <laughs> stool. And um, it's, it's a joke that it can be harder to have your stool selected for this microbiome research than it can be to get into <laughs> Harvard. So, you know, it's like very, very... Um, a healthy microbiome is is becoming harder and harder to come by. But what they found huh. is that if you do a stool transplant from a thin person into a heavy person, and they do this by putting in a nasogastric tube because nobody wants to eat somebody else's poop, but they literally put <laughs> somebody else's stool through the tube into the stomach, and that will recolonize the um microbiome. And what they find is that people lose weight. They've done this with rats and they've done this with humans. And so there's something about the microbiome in a thin person that leads to the person being thin. Now, the problem as it currently is, is that as we said, the body tends to drift back to its original microbiome. So this is why we don't have everybody getting stool transplants yet, but it's some pretty <laughs> interesting and pretty compelling um, research. Hold on. So how could how does that work? Um, what's the link between what the makeup of your microbiome and losing weight? Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, basically, I mean, we have so many bacteria that live inside of our bodies, and we have developed a pretty um, mutually beneficial, I think they call it a symbiotic relationship. And so they're mm -hmm. getting fuel from us, and then they're doing a wide variety of things for our own body. And um, it contributes to how healthy our immune system is, to how we metabolize our food, to um, a wide, uh, a wide, uh, new things being discovered every day. So um, when in terms of obesity, it seems that certain bacteria 
will eat up more of the fuel that's in the food than other bacteria. So, you know, an Mm. average human needs about 1300 calories a day just to kind of survive and get around. But we actually eat about 2,000 to 2,500 calories per day. So when you Mm -hmm. realize that there's that delta, you would think that all of us just should always get heavier every single year. And for many people, that doesn't happen. And even when you, there are certain thin people where you make the joke, it seems like they have a hollow leg because they can eat and eat and eat Mm -hmm. and they don't gain weight. And that may be because the um, microbiome just takes all of those extra calories and just uses them up so that they're not absorbed into the body and deposited into fat cells. Whereas people who have an obesogenic or, you know, microbiome, one that's more likely to cause obesity, just has a microbiome that doesn't quite, um, that doesn't use excess calories as effectively. So that's one theory as to how the microbiome could be playing a role in obesity. My God, this is so fascinating. I feel like I can just ask you questions and get full and all this amazing information all day. (laughs) Yeah, I like to geek out Um, about this stuff for sure. Yeah, my God, (laughs) me too. We are over an hour here and I don't want to take up too much of your time. Is there anything else you think is important that we cover before we sign off? Mm, You know, this was a really great tour through um, healthy eating. (laughs) And um, Mm -hmm. I think the only thing that I want to say is I just don't want to downplay the importance of exercise. Um, One of the things that people Mm. also say is that animal protein and a high fat diet can cause inflammation, but it appears that exercise is actually protective against the inflammatory effects of a high fat diet. So it's not so much that... um, you know, we're, it's not so much that we need to go burn a certain number of calories every day, but it really seems like we need to move our muscles more and we don't want to downplay the importance of strength training. So I think hmm. that um, the last thing that I'd like people to hear and just to remember is that, you know, we all have you know, Fitbits or Apple Watches or these different devices that just kind of remind us to get up and move once an hour, that that's probably really, really important, almost more important than making sure you get to the gym for some specified, you know, cardio or strength training time. And that is still important. So just looking at things like how much do I move in a day? Could I get a standing desk? Can I just take a walk over to the water cooler? And then ideally, um, I think it's three days of cardio and two days of strength training that has the most evidence for maintaining um, fitness and muscle health. And I think that that's just a really important part to think about in any healthy eating strategy. Well, that's quite intimidating. Three days of cardio and two days of strength training every week? Well, let's talk about- I don't know many people that could really keep that up. Yeah. You know, when we talk about cardio, we want to remember that that's like 30 minutes of walking. So it doesn't have to be really intense cardio by any means. Like just, you know, carving out 30 minutes that that you walk is what the studies show has a lot of benefit. Now, as you increase exercise intensity, you can get some improved effects. And the one other thing I'll give a plug for is this high intensity interval training. So if 30 minutes feels like too much, maybe you can even get 15, but you alternate it such that, you know, you do 10 seconds all out as hard as you can and then a 50 second rest and do that for even five minutes or maybe 
one minute at a fast pace and then three minutes of rest. So there's something about this type of interval training that we know also contributes to muscular health and has a metabolic effect long after you're exercising. So if that 30 minutes of cardio three times a week plus you know two, 30 minutes of strength training twice a week seems overwhelming, um, you know, think about, well, what, what can I do and how can I get more active in my day-to-day life? And definitely consider that high intensity interval training. Hmm. You've got the medical recommendations and the sensitivity to people's uh, mindsets and the sort of psychological piece. It's really quite impressive um, and really interesting to talk to you about all this. Last thing, tell me about this other trend, intermittent fasting. Ah, yeah. So (laughs) uh, let me try to do that quickly. It's a really complicated (laughs) actually. Um, Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I think the important thing to know is that people define intermittent fasting very, very differently. So mm-hmm. um, before we can get into a serious conversation about that, we'd have to sort of um, understand what we're talking about. The quick answer is that the type of fasting that has the most um, evidence is actually undergoing a 36-hour fast and then followed mm-hmm. by a period of, of eating. When you talk to people who are doing intermittent fasting, um, typically they will just restrict their eating to about an eight hour period in the day. So maybe they only eat from noon until 8 p.m. And um, that seems to work better for them. There definitely um, is some evidence that intermittent fasting can improve blood sugar um, and a wide variety of other metabolic outcomes. But um, I don't think that um, intermittent fasting, the way it's often practiced, is... um, really has much evidence that it's better than any other dietary approach. So once again, I think it comes down to personal preference. Um, You know, I kind of have a pygmy shrew metabolism, and if I don't get fed every three hours, you don't really want to be around (laughs) me. So I can't imagine doing intermittent fasting, but there are some people that say they, you know, don't find fasting to be that difficult. And if you do these longer fast periods, there is um, some data in the anti-aging research that is talking about its effect on telomeres. And we could get into a whole other conversation about um, anti-aging effects. And there is some evidence that fasting is good for that outcome. Well, we'll have to do this again sometime. Hearing how you describe your own eating habits and your own caloric needs and things like that, I sort of feel like we have similar genes or something because I, I really resonate with pretty much everything you said. And actually, I do find that your kind of personal disclosure about how you eat and how you manage these things really makes the information, all the data that you have come alive in a way. It makes it much more compelling to me and people listening and thinking about how to eat in the best way for them. So thank you for all of that. Yeah, it's a lot of a lot of fun, and you know, and I always just tell everybody, you know, um, I've got all this knowledge, but I am also human with these same cravings and tendencies, and we all get to work on it together. Yeah, thank you again for doing this, and um, really appreciate having you on, and would love to do it again sometime. Thank you. It was really fun. Okay, Kara, have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Okay, bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mindspace podcast. I hope it was inspiring. If you feel the world could use a little more Mindspace, please consider supporting the podcast. The best way to do that is to leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen, 
or share your favorite episode on social media. Thanks and be well. Thanks and be well.